All right, but before we get into that, just to set up, we, if, if, you know, we have a campus in Williamsburg that we launched about 18 months ago. It was about a year and a half ago. So we're going to be making a huge announcement at the Williamsburg campus tomorrow. So this is called manipulation right here. So if you want to be a part, hear that, you got to come. So if you've never been to the Williamsburg campus before or you haven't been in a long time, tomorrow's the day for you to what we call double dip, to be here and then to be there. So big decisions. If Vanessa's not here tonight, but she's a word that, you know, we like to make up words in our family. Anybody watch the spelling bee this week on ESPN? I mean, it was amazing, amazing. So we like to make up words in our house. So a word that Vanessa made up some time ago is monumentous where she took monumental and momentous, and she just kind of put them together, right? So, so we joke that when something big's about ready to happen, it's going to be monumentous. We have a monumentous announcement that we're going to be making at the Williamsburg campus tomorrow. So just baiting you a little bit with that. So we are launching a new series. It's going to last for three weeks, and it's going to encompass uh, Father's Day weekend for us. Uh, it's entitled 24. If you're familiar with that show, it was one of the most popular television series shows ever in the history of television. It went from eight, it had eight seasons. It went from 2001 to 2010. And they're talking about bringing it back this summer. Any 24 fans? They're talking about bringing it back this summer because it was so popular and there's been so much pressure to, I tried watching it. I watched, I think a couple of times. I was so stressed out by the end of the show. I have enough stress in my life already, you know. I was like, I had had, you know, like 14 cups of coffee. I was like, I can't do it. I know one of the episodes I watched when he was interrogating somebody, they were strapped to a chair, he actually pushes a screwdriver into their knee. And I was like, see, now I'm stressed out and I think I fainted. And someone had to wake me up. I said, I've got to do something a little, I'm just going to watch news, right. And then I was just as freaked out by that. And so I just, we watch HGD. HGTV at our house, so Inter House Centers International. So, all right, so 24. So let's, just to get us thinking along the right direction tonight for our topic, what are some other shows that have captured the attention of America? Come on. The Walking Dead, right? That's one of the most recent ones, Jen. Duck Dynasty. Any Duck Dynasty fans in here? I know. I, I joke with Vanessa every now and again, my beard, that's where it's headed. And she says, not in this house. It's not, right? Jim. NCIS. NCIS. Somebody else. Television show that's captured people. The Office. Yes. The Moriarty's. Funniest. That's still a favorite in our household. Yeah. Survivor. Huge one. Lisa. Roots. Yeah. Going way back. Yes. How, how many people remember Dallas? You remember that one? Are you dating yourself, right? One of the first shows to really, what was your hand over here? Elementary? Yep, somebody else. What's, what's the other big one? Somebody said it yet, April. ER, oh nice, that right, yeah, that did, right? Yeah, I remember that, I forgot about that. Lost, that's the one I've been looking for. Anybody else was a Lost fan? Right, we would take those, we, we got started in that late into the seasons and so we started downloading them on iTunes and we'd go away on vacation, we would stay up half the night. We'd say, come on, we can watch one more, right, because without commercials it would only be about 40 minutes and so we'd stay up to like 3 in the morning getting caught up in that. And that's one of the things about those shows, you watch them, you can't stop, right, you're sucked in. It, it becomes part of your conversations, you're talking to people about it, it has a, an all-consuming kind of effect 
on us, especially like the show 24. I mean, you, you would talk about it, tell the truth, like as if it was real and you were a part of the story, okay? And then, and then some people, right, especially if you're of the sci-fi camp, you've got costumes and we know it in your closet, right? Just saying. So, so David is a big Green Lantern fan. So all the groomsmen love this. All the groomsmen at his wedding, underneath their dress shirt of their suits, had on superhero t-shirts. So this one of their pictures is all the groomsmen opening up their shirts, and he's got the big green. So he was excited to see Wayne at the at the media booth tonight, rocking his Green Lantern t-shirt. So that's just a little little sidebar, right? So, but you get you get sucked in, you get pulled in, and I think one of the reasons for that is because all of us like the idea of being a part of something that consumes us. There's something about our humanity, the way God created us, that we are hungry for something that is so important that we give our life to it. There's something inside of us, we long for that kind of purpose. We long to be a part of a story that's so significant that it makes history. And we like the idea of the possibility of us being the central person, right? Nobody watches the show 24 and says, I really want to be that person at the computer in the office that was only in one episode that handed a post-it note to somebody, right? You don't dream, you want to be Jack Bauer. You want to be one of the other, you want to be a person that, but what you do or don't do, it's going to make a difference on the success of that. There's something inside of us that says, I want to be a part of a story, and I don't just want to be in the story, I want to be in the middle of the story, and I want it to consume everything about my life. You have a desire. I have a hunger like that. It's stirring inside of us even now tonight. And this is what I would say to you. We do have a mission, and time is short, and evil must not win. We have a mission, and time is short, and evil must not win. There is a story. You're a part of it, and you are a central player in the part that God has given to you. From the foundations of the earth, he's dreamed a dream for your life, and you're the central player in that story. Whether or not you ever become famous in this world, you and I are supposed to be famous in heaven for the life that we live and the purpose that we accomplish that was given to us. The conference we went to last week, Mark Batterson, amazing author, speaker, church planner, was one of the keynote speakers. And he said he limited his travel for this year. He's only traveling a few times. And this is the statement he made because he said, I want to be famous in my home. It's powerful, isn't it? There is fame that we're supposed to be hungry for, but it's not the fame that gives us earthly notoriety. There's a fame that we're supposed to be hungry for, for the purpose that God has given to us. It is supposed to consume us. And for some of us that we're going to talk about in this series, it overlaps. For all of us, that purpose is a little bit different, but there are certain aspects to our purpose. There are certain aspects to the story that we've been invited in by God. There are certain aspects of our mission where time is short and evil must not win that's exactly the same for every person who is a devoted follower of Christ. So if you've got your Bible, whether or not you flip there, swipe there, or you've got paper and turn there, you can go to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, and I'm going to start reading in verse 18. I think I can read this one off the screen. It's just those verses there. I'm just going to read through 20. 
It says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. I'm going to come back to the underlined part and the bolded part. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now, this is what's known as the Great Commission. It's one of the post-resurrection experiences of, of appearances of Christ after he had raised himself from the dead three days after being in the tomb he gives this great proclamation before he ascends into heaven and he tells us about the mission that we all share that you and I have a mission to go out into this world to both be disciples and to also make disciples it's one of the greatest responsibilities that you and I will ever take up in this life it's the central story of the universe is the disciple making mission that you and I have been given he doesn't say go and make a successful church he doesn't say go and, and come up with some type of creative idea that's going to do some good things and you're going to invite people to, to be a part of it. Not, not that those things aren't important, not that that might be part of our journey, but what he says is the most important thing that you can do in your life. Even though I might ask you to do some other things that are important, the most important thing that you can do in your life is to both become a disciple and to make disciples. It is the central part of all of our stories that all of us share equally together. And this idea of all the nations was striking in his day and time. It makes sense to us today, but we've got to remember 2,000 years ago, the things that Jesus was talking about was being coming out of a religion of Judaism. And Judaism was an exclusive religion. Judaism wasn't universal, it was exclusive, right? It would be as though if you said, well, I'm a part of the City Life Church and you're introducing yourself to people here and, and maybe somebody's visiting and you're sharing your story and you were to say, well, <laughs> you know, I was here when it was at the movie theater. I, I was here when there was the smell of popcorn as part of the church service, right? You, you have a sense of, of, of importance because you were here longer. And then maybe somebody else says, well, that's great. But see, I was here when they announced it at the church that planted us in Williamsburg. And maybe if you were the Agate family who goes to the Williamsburg campus, you could say, well, I was there in northern New York when the Wells family was spoken, right? Everybody tries to one-up the other person, right? There's an exclusivity. If you, weren't, if you weren't there, part of it, you feel like you're a second-class citizen. And you know that's not how we do church here at City Life, but that was a part of the culture of Judaism. Justin talked about it. Pastor Justin talked about it last week. Who you were connected from. Who you were a descendant from. And even within that, if you were not born as part of Israel, you could convert to Judaism. You would always be for the rest of your life a second class citizen. Even if you did all the things that you were supposed to do. This idea of inclusiveness was groundbreaking for religion in Jesus' day. So when he says, I want you to be a disciple. I want you to make disciples. I want you to touch the entire world. And every human being you see as a candidate. Every person that you look at, that's a person that I intend to be a disciple as part of the family of God. It was groundbreaking in Jesus's day and it is the story that all of us have been invited into to be a part of, to be one of those disciples and to be a person that is consumed with a passion to see other people become devoted followers of Christ. All right, a little Bible trivia. You like a little Bible trivia? I'm going to test you a little bit tonight. You ready? There may or may not be some giveaways associated with this. I haven't decided yet. To keep you on your toes. Are you ready for the first one? Who can tell me the most common command in the Bible? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Hannah? Go. It's close. That's in the top, but it's not the biggest one. Love? No. Pray? No. No. The biggest command of the Bible is fear not. 
The most common command in the Bible. Did you get it? Does somebody get it? Amber got it? All right. This is my only other giveaway. We're going to give this to Amber. Nice. All right. Fear not. Don't fear not. Do not be afraid to participate in the giveaways here. Let's say, all right, fear not. All right, you ready for the next one? Longest chapter. You know this one? Psalm 119, right? In all of your Bible reading plans, right here. If, you're, if you say, I'm going to read a chapter every night, you get to this one, you're like, oh, God. But, all right, I'm going to read a half chapter every night. And then you realize you're still up half the night. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. How about the shortest verse? Anybody? It is Jesus wept, but there's new competition. Did you know this? With some of the more modern translations of the Bible, it's in Job 3.2, and it's he said. And it's actually shorter than Jesus wept. Just, just, I know some of you are going to go look up it right now because you, you will not give up. You're, there's, two, there's two groups of people forming in the world, the Jesus wept camp and the he said camp. It could, it could divide the church. Are you ready? This is my favorite one right here. The longest name in the Bible. Anybody? I get, nobody here knows that. If you do, I'm just going to sit down and let you keep going with the sermon. Right, I, had no, I didn't even know this. I had some guesses. You ready for this? Marshalal Hashbaz. Yeah? Anybody planning on naming their first son that? Right? This is the name I'm going to start throwing out when people say we're pregnant, it's a boy, what should we name? I'm going to say I think you should think about Marshalal Hashbaz. Right? <laughs> Longest name in the Bible, it's in Isaiah. It was a son of one of the prophets. So... All right, who lived the longest in the Bible? Methuselah, right? Anybody know how many years? 969. He was close. Nate was 967. 969. How about the most referred to person next to Jesus? Jesus is by far. Not Moses, not Paul. Not Abraham, not Elijah. David. Who said David? Raise your hand. Bragging rights. Nice, Scotty. David is 971. Jesus is up in the thousands. Moses is 803. 803. All right, here's another one. Here's my last one. How many times do you find the word discipleship in the Bible? Any takers? Steve? Zero. And he gets it right. Zero. Nowhere in all the Bible do you find this word. Ever. It's shocking, isn't it? I couldn't believe it when I started digging around and studying. Because disciple as a biblical concept has never been about something we do, but rather a person we become. For, for us so much, right, we've grown up in a world, if you've grown up in the church, like I grew up in the church, the idea of discipleship is this, this life of doing. Now we talk a lot about doing here at the City Life Church, and doing is an important part of the journey of being a disciple, but it is not the end game. And if we're not careful, we will live our lives as devoted followers of Christ, feeling as though we're making great progress because we're really busy. But if there's no change in here, then we're not on the journey that Christ has called us to. This idea of being a disciple, the doing brings about the change. We're going to talk about that next week. But in the end, there has to be an understanding of what we're called to. I'm called to be a disciple of Jesus, and I am called to make help other people become disciples of Jesus. And in the end, that really only means one thing. It means change. It means to go on a journey of complete and total transformation. It means looking at who I am and say, Jesus, I want to become the person that you want me to be. And if I live for another 100 years, I want to look like a stranger now compared to the person that I'm going to become. We have a mission 
Time is short and evil must not win. All right, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Oh, this is a good verse. Chapter 12, verse 11, it says, And they defeated him, speaking of Satan, Lucifer, the evil in the world. They defeated him by the blood of the Lamb, right? That's what this table is about. It's about the death of Jesus on the cross, the blood that he shed for both the remission of sin, but to also conquer the power of sin and death. In that moment, when he rose himself, raised himself from the dead, it says they defeated him by the blood of the Lamb. And you would think they would just stop there, right? You would think that would be enough. You, you would think that because the Savior of the world came and did what he was supposed to do, the Son of the living God came to this earth, died, that would be enough, but it does not stop there. And that surprises me a little bit. The overcome, the defeating of the enemy, the defeating of evil in the world, it has a second part to the verse. It says, and they defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. It's powerful, isn't it? Now, it is most certainly talking about martyrdom. It is most certainly talking about, in Jesus' day, that, that people died. Even today, in this world, people give their life. We have freedoms in this country. That was part of what we celebrated for Memorial Day. But there are other countries in the world. When you make a decision to follow Christ, your life could be at stake. It is most certainly talking about that. Being willing to give yourself to something. Have, have Be so consumed by something that you know that even if it costs you your life, you'd be willing to pay that price. It is most certainly, but it's not just talking about that. You and I can't look at that and say that doesn't really have meaning to me because I'm not ever going to live in my lifetime, God willing, have to face that kind of consequence. But it's not just talking about that. It's also talking about something spiritual, I believe. It's, it's talking about loving not your life enough to die. Because Jesus said if anyone would come after me, right, any man would come after me, he's got to be willing to lay down his life. He's got to be willing to pick up his cross. If you want to live, you've got to die. There's this idea that you look at your life, I look at my life, and there's things about our lives that we know that we want to change, and some of those things are ugly, and some of those things that we can't get rid of quick enough, but if you're honest with yourself, and I want to be honest with myself tonight, there's parts of our lives that we know that are so changed, but we like them. You with me? Right? I remember when I was 23 and, I, and God really began to speak to me. I grew up in the church, but I didn't make a vow of devotion to become a Christ follower until 1990. And, uh, and so I remember the summer of 1990, literally sitting down and making a list of all the things I knew that I would have to give up if I was going to become a Christ follower. And I had a conversation with God. I'm good with giving up these, but this stuff, I really like this stuff. I really enjoy these parts of my life, and I know that they're wrong, but I just, right, you with me? Anybody have some things like that on your list? Jesus is saying, hey, this idea of being a disciple, it is supposed to be all-consuming. And even the things that you don't want to die, even the things you don't want to let go, if you know that God is speaking to you, you have to trust that he always has your best interest at heart. And if he's asking you to give up something that brings you great pleasure, even though deep down inside you know that it's wrong, you've got to trust that he's going to replace it with something even better because that's the nature and the heart of who God is. Loving not your life, even you've got to be willing to face death. Whether it's a natural death or a spiritual death, it's part of the journey of being a disciple. I'm willing to lay it down to follow after him. And I want my example to inspire others the same way. Being and making disciples, it's our secret weapon. It's right there in the text. There is evil that is in this world. 
There is someone, Satan, who's a real being that's behind all of that evil, and we are squarely in the middle of the fight with God against the evil that is at work in this world, and the greatest weapon you and I have, we find it right there in Revelation 12, verse 11, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus already did his part, now we've got a part to play, and you've got a central role in the purpose of your life to be the disciple that Jesus is asking you to be and to give yourself wholly to this journey of reaching the world around you that they might become the disciple of Christ that he died for them to become. So I want to talk about two ways that we can give ourselves to this mission of discipleship. Two ways that, that we can, we're going to pick up with some more this week, but I think we'll get through two of them tonight. If not, we'll just save the other one for next week and we'll push it out. But this first one, I want to spend some time. Intrusive, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus and not have intrusive relationships in your life. You can't. And when you're trying to figure out what the word intrusive means, when I hear this word, I think about my trips to the dentist. Anybody here? Right? You go to the dentist. My dentist has this, this contraption that they use where they, they put it in your mouth to force your mouth to stay open. Anybody have a dentist that uses that? Right? They put this thing in your mouth. It is the most uncomfortable, intrusive thing. It forces your mouth to open up like a python so you could swallow a possum. Right? It, 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 it takes you to the verge of almost your jaw disconnecting so that he can. I think if you're going to be a dentist, you should have to do a hand measure test, right? If you're, I'm sorry, you can't be a dentist because your hands are way too big. So you got this thing in your mouth. Uh, it is, I mean, it is uncomfortable. You got to have friends in your life that make you uncomfortable at times. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we're going to look at it tonight. You have got to have friends that are willing to have conversations with you that make you feel like you're at the dentist chair and something has been shoved into your mouth and forced it open. Now, I'm not talking about people that control you. I'm not talking about people that you're not. But you should have people that you're in relationship with, people that you love, people that you trust, people that you're, you're, you're spending some time with who love you enough to have hard conversations with you. If you don't have that in your life, the kind of change that needs to come, it will never come because you live your life in isolation. And some of the biggest things in your life that need to change, you'll just keep hidden from the rest of the world around you. So let me ask you this question. What if Jesus audited your finances over the last six months and put the report out on Facebook? What, what, if, what if he shadowed your parenting for the last year and videotaped it and we played it at the end of the service? What, what, if, what if Jesus has a recording of everything that you've chosen to look at over the last three months? I'm not talking about things that you see and then you look away because you recognize the temptation, right? I've got boys and we've got one that's going to be a teenager and we're already starting to have conversations with them about sexuality. We've been having that from when they were younger and there's a whole series of books that we use and if you want some information about that, we can talk to you about that. But we go to the mall, my boys, they know when we are walking past Victoria's Secrets, it's eyes straight ahead. Look at something, don't even look over there. We're responsible for the places that our eyes go to, right? I'm not talking about the accidents where you see something accidentally you choose to look away I'm talking about the things that you say oh I'm going to look at that just for a few more minutes right what if what if there was a kiosk here tonight that had your name on it and we could just take turns going into every kiosk and watching the things that you've chosen to see what would we find what if we had a recording of every word that you spoke just over the last seven days what would we hear what would we hear Every thought that lingered in your mind. What if, what, if, what if we knew what they were? What if all of that was wide open for the world to see? You with me? Can I, can I dentist a little bit right now? All right. 
are, are thing in my mouth. It's really intrusive. I want to have friends in my life who ask me these kinds of questions. I have friends in my life that ask me these kinds of questions. We get together on a regular basis, and we have these kinds of talks with each other. Do you have people in your life? We talk about life groups. We're not just trying to build a program at the City Life Church to count numbers so we can say, woo, look what we did. No, no, no. We have a mission, and time is short, and evil must not win. And our secret weapon is disciple-making. And one of the only ways that you're going to be able to be the disciple you're called to be and make the disciples that you're supposed to make because you're supposed to have an impact on some people is to be in a room where you can begin to invest in relationships so trust begins to form so that you can be the person that both initiates and receives those kinds of conversations with one another. And if you live your life on the outside looking in, you're never going to have those kinds of relationships. You never have those kinds of relationships. You're going to struggle with these things for the rest of your life, and you just don't have to. Not that you and I aren't going to face temptation. We're supposed to conquer those temptations, but you will not conquer it by yourself. If you do not have intrusive relationships, you will struggle in areas where you should be victorious. Too many people would rather have programs to attend than relationships that challenge. Too many people would rather have programs to attend than relationships that challenge. We don't want to be a church that just makes you busy. We want to be a church that invites you into a journey of transformation and change. And so we invite you into a world of relationships that go deep, invite you into a world of relationships that are authentic, invite you into a world of relationships where you have the hard conversations with each other so that you can be someone different than you are today, so that I can be someone different than I am today. All right, Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. I'm going to pick up in verse 10. This excerpt is out of the New King James. I'm going to explain why that is in just a minute. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, and different translations render different texts in different ways, but I think the King James and the New King James got it right. So if you're picking up in verse 10, it says a final word in the New Living Translation, but the word brethren is not there, but you'll see it up there. So a final word, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. Come on, because we have a mission and time is short and evil must not win. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against the mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in heavenly places. It sounds like the great advertisement for a new TV series, doesn't it? Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And verse 18, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Now some of you, you've got great familiarity with this text, the, the armor of God, and there's been great studies and great sermon series on these types of things. And, and one of the questions that I often ask is when you read that text, do, what, what do you picture? When you read that text, some of you even thinking about it right now, you have an image in your, in your mind. And for me, so often when I've read that, I have an image of myself, right? Being the sole warrior, the Jack Bauer on the battlefield. 
When everybody else has fallen, I'm the only one standing and I am conquering the world all by myself, right? It's part of our curse of our Western mindset. We're so stinking individualistic, isn't it? That's one of the reasons why I think the King James got the rendering right. And that's why I think the ancient manuscripts, not all of them have it, but the ancient manuscripts that have my brothers and my brethren in there, I think are the ones that were true to the original form because everything about Paul is he's always about community. When you read and study the, the epistles that Paul writes, all the letters that he he has no concept of Christianity that is solitude. His concept of Christianity does not exist apart from community. So I think when he's writing this letter to the church of Ephesus, I think he put that in there. I think he's saying, finally, my brothers, because he has no concept of this army that's supposed to be at work in this world as individual people. He has concept of a fighting unit that's standing side by side, working together, especially when you think about the day and the time that he lived with the Roman army and the worlds that they were able to conquer because they began to fight in ways that armies before them had never fought before because they fought as one unit standing together. I think the picture that he's trying to give us here is that we're all in this thing together, standing side by side, so close where, could we use the word intrusive? And so that when I'm there in the battle and somebody is standing next to me, somebody who's close to me, somebody that I've invited into my life, that they can say, hey, when we were walking out from church the other day, I, 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 could, could I just love on you in a minute? Right, That's the phrase we use. Can I just love on you for a minute? It seemed like you, you snapped at your, your kids and, hey, I, because I love you, I just want to say, hey, you can, you can wound your children by talking to them that way. Now, you can't do that to strangers, right? Because that's not good. That won't end up well. But if you've got people that love you enough, that you love enough, you can have those conversations. The things that you say in the conversations you have have to be commensurate to the depth of relationship that exists. But if you don't have relationships that go deep, then you'll never be able to have the deep conversations that you're supposed to have. I want people in my life in the fight that are standing next to me. And when I've got a chink in my armor, they can look at me and say, hey, you, you got to work on that. You, you can I want people in my, in my life who love me enough, if my sword is dull and I've dropped my shield, that they can step into my life and press me and challenge me and be intrusive because we have a mission and time is short and evil must not win. And being disciples and making disciples, it is our secret weapon. It is the way we overcome. Matthew 16 Matthew 16. I'm going to start reading in verse 21. It says, From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and that he would be killed. And on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him. He's, he's, he's trying his hand at this thing at intrusive relationships. You with me? It doesn't turn out so well for Peter, though. Says to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, that this will ever happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Hey, it's okay, buddy. It's all right. I appreciate what you're trying to do for me here. No, no, no. What does he say to him? Get away from me, Satan. You've wanted to say that to people before. Tell the truth. Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Can I just tell you, I want people in my life, if my attitude is right out of the pits of hell, I want them to be say, hey, that attitude you have right now, I mean, that is, that is right out of hell. You can't do that, right? Can I just tell you, marriage is one of the greatest gifts to this world because one of the greatest gifts of transformation you will ever have. You can't hide from the person you're living with. And you know what? You're not supposed to. 
And, and if your marriage is healthy and your marriage is strong, then that's going to be one of those relationships you've got to give each other permission. If, you, if somebody needs to say to you, this thing that you're pursuing is the spawn of Satan, right? You need to be able to hear it from them. And if you're not, we got some marriage people in this that can give you some counsel so you can be on your way there. We have got to have intrusive relationships. Our spouses, our children, our friends that are close in this inner circle who are willing to say to us what Jesus said to Peter. It sounds harsh, but sometimes we need someone to grab us and shake us and say, that's not right. And if you don't have people that you let say those kinds of things to you, you are a lonely, lonely person on the inside. And you desperately struggle with things that you're supposed to break free from. And you've laid down your secret weapon. The disciple that you're supposed to be, the disciples that you're supposed to be able to make through the example that you live. And intrusive relationships is one of the only ways there. All right, measurable results. We're just going to touch on this one, then we're going to pick up on it next week. You've got to have intrusive relationships, and there, have, there has to be measurable results. So for some time now, I've been studying. These are called the five great growth lists. The five great growth lists. George Wood is the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God, and uh, he is one of the great modern-day scholars of Christianity, and, and, and he writes and talks and teaches on these. I came across these years ago, uh, and, and, and uh, here they are, Matthew 5, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, and 2 Peter 1. I've been studying these and studying these and studying these, and, and, and you know, we've got three numbers that, 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 that we talk a lot about. We're going to talk about them next week if, if you're new to the church. We call it the 1, the 6, and the 12, and we'll, we'll talk about what those numbers mean next week. So, so when I've been studying these, these, these five great growth lists are all the great virtues that God expects to see in a disciple. You with me? If I'm a disciple of Jesus, there should be some virtues that are very present in my life. And so George Wood talks about these great growth lists. So I was studying them again not too long ago, and I began to have this conversation with God, right? Because we've got these numbers, the 1, the 6, and the 12 that we talk about. I was thinking, you know, if there's some overlap in these lists and, and, and they end up being 24, that would be really cool. And then, I mean, come on, so we got the 1, the 6, and the 12. If, if the number of virtues turned out to be, when you took out the overlap, ended up to be 24, I'd be pretty excited so, right, because I'm a Bible geek and that's what I do. So, so one day the family was off doing something and so I've got, you know, my studies out and I'm just downstairs and, and reading and studying and so I get these things out and I just said, out, out of integrity, right, because I, I try to be an integrous person, out of integrity, I'm not going to keep count. I'm just going to start scratching off all the ones that overlap, you know. So I had all the lists, wrote them all down, read it, wrote everything, and then I just said, without any kind of, so that overlaps here, that overlaps there, this overlaps here. And then it came time for the count. Are you with me? I'm going to count them and see how many I have. If there is a God in heaven, there's going to be 24, right? <laughs> so I counted, and I counted 25. And I said, oh, I can find one more to cross out, <laughs> right? You can look at these lists and how you get to it and which ones cross out. That's not what matters at the end of the day. But I've got 24 that I'm going to show you right now. And these 24 are going to become a part of the conversation of the City Life Church. I'm going to read them to you. I can't read them from that list because that's just a little bit too hard to see. But it looks better for you. So, Out of Matthew chapter 5, you have humble, emotionally honest, 
meek, desiring righteousness, merciful, truthful, peaceful, and devoted. In Romans, you have four, affectionate, fervent, serving, and hospitable. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you have two, faith and hope. In Galatians chapter 5, you have eight, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, I've taken out the overlaps. And in 2 Peter, you have two more that rounded out to 24. You have wisdom and you have persevering. These 24, if there was ever a portrait of a disciple, it's right here. And I want these 24 to define who I am. Now you might be thinking if everybody were those things, the world would be a boring place. Hey, come on. There's plenty of room. For ethnicity, there's plenty of room for, 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 for passion and various interests. If the whole world, if everybody could champion those 24, there would still be so much diversity in the world you couldn't even fathom it. But when it comes to character, can we not ask God to let us be a part of a great mission that would see our world change from the inside out one person at a time, starting with yourself? We have a mission and time is short, and evil must not win, and our secret weapon is being a disciple and making disciples, and that is the portrait of the person that Jesus died on the cross for you and I to become. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. So I told a story at David and Anona's wedding that's going to become a part of, I think, some of my mix of wedding homilies. And uh, um, I, I, I tested it for the first time at, at their wedding. We had some a good time with it. It was a story that I heard at the uh, conference that we went to up in Lima, New York last week. And Paul Johansson, which is just a, a great father of the faith of, again, modern-day Christianity. He lives here in this area, actually, but he was up there, and he did the last story, of, I mean, the last sermon for the last night. And he tells this story about when he was a little boy and that, that he was invited by his, his grandfather, who was a great evangelist of his day, to come to a big tent revival meeting, right? back in the day where people did these big tent revivals. And this was in New York. And they had all these famous evangelists come. And they were expecting crowds in the thousands. And they were believing by faith that many people would take steps to becoming a disciple of Christ for the first time. And they said, we want to baptize them that night. And so they had three above-ground pools brought in that went across the front of this platform that they had manufactured under this huge tent. And there was a big pool to the side. There was a big one in the middle. And there was one over there. And his grandfather was one of the first speakers to come up after at the end of the baptism they had a series of messages that were going to be preached and he was the first one that was going to come up and he knew he didn't have time to change right so he's got to baptize people's gonna be soaking dripping wet and everybody else would have time to go and change their clothes and dry off and put on dry and then be able to get up and take their turn but he was the first one up and so he came up with this shortcut i'm gonna wear hip waders if you're an outdoorsman, you know what I'm talking about. Those things that you put on and you get down inside and they keep you dry. If you've ever done duck hunting or, or trout fishing, right, you have these hip waders. So he said, I'm going to wear the suit that I'm going to preach in and I'm going to get inside these hip waders. And I can stuff myself down in these hip waders. And back in the day, you wore this big white robe that you would wear when you were doing baptism. So people couldn't even see that he had it on. And he would just step backstage and he would take off the robe and undo the hip waders. And bam, he would be, right, clean and fresh and pressed in the pulpit. So he's in there and. What he didn't count on is that they were going to let a lot of the people that were waiting get into the water with him. Well, guess what happens when you put all those people in the pool? Well, it displaces the water a little bit. Now, how about people? It's a Pentecostal tent meeting, right? So people are getting excited. They're jumping up and down. So now all of a sudden they got some white caps in this pool, right? True story. Some people are falling out under the power of God. That makes a big wave, right? So the next thing you know, water is just true story. Getting up, he's wet. It's just splashing down into those hip waders, right? 
Next thing you know, his feet are a little bit sloshy. Well, make a long story short, by the end of the baptisms, his hip waders are filled with water, right? You fill those bad boys up and you see, right? People drown in those things, right? They get filled up with water. It's, it's, you can't, it's so much weight. So he's standing in the pool, and he happens to be at the pool that's right here on the edge, and everybody gets out. There's thousands of people just watching, and he just, he cannot move. He, he gets one foot, you know, like this. And he finally works his way over to the edge where he can sit down, and he knows he is stuck. He's, everybody's just watching him. He makes eye contact with someone down there who travels with them, and, and, and they come up onto the platform. He whispers to them. I should have had somebody come up and do it, but they drag him like this, and they pick his feet up and hold him upside down. True story. And all the water comes rushing out into the pool. He stands up, takes off his robe, pulls off the hip waders, and soaking, dripping wet, steps up into the pulpit and delivers his message that he's supposed to give. There's a proverb that says, there is a way that seems right unto a man. You with me? You and, we are always looking for the shortcuts, are we not? So he had this great idea. There's a shortcut I'm going to find. There is no shortcuts in discipleship. There aren't any. It's a hard road. It's a long road. It's a narrow road. It's a challenging road. It's a road that is oftentimes uncomfortably intrusive. And if you're looking for the short way around, you're not going to find it. And if you find one that looks like a short way around, hey, you lose in the end because you live less. We have a mission. And time is short. And evil, it must not win. Stand with me. Father, we say tonight, as we stand in this place of worship, we say... Whatever kind of intrusive experience that we need to have to begin the journey of transformation that you want us to start, we say let it come because we want those 24 to define who we are. We want at the end of our days when we breathe our last that those virtues were present in our lives, that evil did not win because we stood with the people around us and we stood strong. In Jesus' name, let's worship together.